0: Welcome, everybody, to the latest episode of Media Sandwich, a podcast where we, you know, we do that thing on uh, the thing that happens on your favorite cable news channel uh, every night where they take the latest news headlines and just kind of react to them as if they have a modicum of knowledge of what's going on or or why you should care, except we do it with pop culture and entertainment news. And we have the good graces to hide our faces and and make this available directly to your earbuds or speakers, uh, which we've decided are your ear speakers. Uh, I am you, Kyle Martinak. Your ear speakers. Your ear speakers, exactly. I am Kyle Martinak, and with me today, he is the man who has been driving me around everywhere since I was 15 years old, and somehow he's never kicked me out of the car. Chris Pranger, kids.
1: Thank you, David Chen. Thank you, David Chen, for leading me into that episode. Somebody's gonna get that. Kyle gets that.
0: Oh, I get that. I get that big time.
1: <laughs> He's the man who who played <laughs> oh, one of David. the dogs in *Homeward Bound* two. Lost in the oh, city. Oh, David,
0: you remembered *Homeward Bound* two. I, I love that movie.
1: I did too. I don't remember. I don't remember Stephen Tobolowsky's character in that because obviously we're referencing Tobolowsky files. But I don't remember the character in that. I just remember that he was. The rival dog to Chance, because he who loved Delilah, the girl, the girl dog that Chance was in love with, but I don't remember his name, and I, I almost dare to guess that Stephen Tobolowsky doesn't remember that character's name either. It just feels like one probably of those roles he probably enjoyed, but he's now forgotten entirely.
0: <laughs> I'm going to use that as a trivia question, though, if I ever end up hosting like a bar trivia. Uh, name the movie in which Stephen Tobolowsky is in a, uh, in, in a, uh, contest for a lady's love with Michael J. Fox. And that is Homeward <laughs> Bound 2, uh, Lost in San Francisco. There it is,
1: man. Like speaking of all that, this is a, this is a good set little tangent to, to chew on. I have been, I have wanted to make a sequel to Groundhog Day, which of course, yes, yes. Sacrilege as it is. Um, and part of me wants to make a sequel to Groundhog Day, which is literally just the whole entire movie of Groundhog Day. Just, it just literally is the movie played again with the two in the title, which people people get a kick of it. But I actually do really want to write a script for like an actual sequel where some, I mean, stop me if you've heard this one. Someone else gets stuck in the time loop, but as a result... (laughs) They start talking to people in town, including some of the the favorites. So like Stephen Tobolowsky's Ned Ryerson is there too. This person talks to Ned Ryerson and he's like, this reminds me of what happened to my old friend who actually lives down the street. And of course you go and talk to Bill Murray and they're like, I heard you're in a time loop. And Bill Murray freaks out and is like, get away from me. I don't want to get stuck in this again. And then the person wakes up the next day, and Bill Murray's at their doors, like "You, you son of a bitch! I told you not to get me stuck in this again." And now, <laughs> hilarity ensues. It'll be crazy. I haven't now that written reminds it yet. me, So,
0: di- did did you ever see uh, Palm Springs?
1: Yes. Oh, I love that one. That was a great that was one.
0: a good. That was like that was the first. Uh, the first movie that released directly to streaming during the pandemic that felt like it should be in the theaters, that it was just a really big smile of a movie at a time where I really needed a big smile.
1: That one was a whole lot of fun. I feel like there was another Groundhog Day-esque movie that came out not long ago, but I'm blanking on what it it was. Maybe I heard of one that was like, like a slasher type movie where someone was stuck in a time loop who kept, they kept getting killed by some you know slasher villain, but they couldn't oh, identify them, yeah, so they were trying um, to. That was the uh, goal. You movie. might be
0: thinking of Happy De- Happy Death Day. I think it's called.
1: That sounds familiar.
0: Yeah. I I might even be getting the title wrong, but I, I believe there was even a sequel called Happy Death Day Two. You two being <laughs> the number two. Classic. Yeah, no, I, uh, time loops are fun. Uh, unfortunately I have to watch them by myself. My wife has decided, um, I just don't like time loop movies. And I'm like, why? <laughs> she goes, I just don't like the point in the movie where they haven't figured out it's a time loop yet. And they're, you know, going through the same conversations with everybody and everybody's being really mean to each other cause they don't know what's going on. It's just, it sucks. It's not fun to watch. And I'm like, yeah, okay, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, something that is fun to watch, and we'll we'll get started right off the bat with a some updates and some unfortunately some obituaries. I'm just gonna put them right at the top because we've 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 got a couple. Um, but we'll start with something happy. Uh, we talked a few weeks back about three Avatar: The Last Airbender animated feature films that were in the works from Nickelodeon and Paramount, and. I got really excited because I was under the... They're for Netflix specifically, right? They are not, no. They're Uh, not. Oh,
1: I could have sworn they were specifically because Netflix has the rights to do a live action Avatar Last Airbender series, and they're working on that. And that's what they're doing. So I I thought that these three movies were also part of that, because like... Netflix is kind of getting funky when they're getting the license to do the live-action stuff. Because they're working on the live-action adaptation of One Piece. And as a result, they've also got a lot of One Piece. Including some of the movies, which are actually not on, like, Crunchyroll. Where all of the series is on Crunchyroll. But none of the movies are on Crunchyroll, which drives me nuts. So like I, But I realized oh, the other wow. day, oh, if I want to see some of the movies... I have two options. I can either A watch a few of them on Netflix or B I watch them all with Gus, which I probably will end up doing because I need to just marathon all the movies with Gus cuz that would probably be the best way to watch those movies, honestly.
0: Yeah, it, honestly, that that sounds great actually. I would rather watch them with with you and Gus than by myself for <laughs> sure cuz I would have a bunch of questions. Yeah, but you uh, <laughs> but no, yeah. Wait a minute. How are these of... cart- How are these drawings talking to me? well stay tuned for some more news about how are these drawings talking to me but uh but yeah no netflix they do have the uh, rights to the live action adaptation at the moment for avatar the last airbender but the creators of the the creators of the original show jumped ship on that pretty early on in the development process for it which is always a good sign yeah that was kind of the first like uh uh-oh moment and then Uh, turns out that they went back to Nickelodeon and Paramount and said, Hey, you guys still have the rights to it as animated. We want to do more stories in the universe and keep our hands on, you know, this is our story. And we want to, we want to tell our story in different spots in the timeline. And Mm -hmm. namely, they wanted to do stories about the Ang gang as young adults after they've grown up. And nickelodeon and paramount were like absolutely that sounds like a smart idea let's do it and they signed them on for three full-length movies rather than a new show or one movie shows a lot of confidence in those guys as you know crowd pleasers for them i operated when i first was talking about this a couple weeks ago i was operating under the assumption that these were going to be straight to paramount plus because that made the most sense to me right Mm -hmm. and it actually turns out the first one, at the very least, is actually coming to theaters. They announced this last week.
1: That And this also makes sense. And I, this actually, funny enough, has to do with One Piece. I bet you is the reason why it's coming to theaters. Because the recent One Piece, uh, I think One Piece Red is what it's called. One Piece yeah. Movie Red. Um, did Would like hit top charts. Like, it, I don't, it wasn't number one, but it was like two or three. In the U.S. for an uh, anime yeah. movie, it, and it was not... in the
0: top five, which is nuts.
1: Yeah, and about a month before that, you had Dragon Ball Super superheroes, which also hit the U.S. theaters, and that one did Gangbusters as well. And I think that Paramount and Nickelodeon looked and were like, you know, it's not it's not a far walk to get to. Avatar The Last Airbender movies in theaters if these two franchises that have a ravenous fan base are coming to theaters I bet you we we have enough Avatar fan base that's going to come to theaters too like that's my that's my you know quarter armchair quarterback thinking there for for this move and it's not a dumb move either I think that's very smart to release them in theaters first at least try this first one and see which is the first one by the way is this is this the uh because like, 'cause I've heard there's three. There's one that's based around Zuko, one that's based around I think Korra, and then one that's based around Kyoshi.
0: Right? Uh I didn't hear about that. I I was under the assumption that all three of these were gonna take place with the whole Aang Gang as as young adults. Uh point of order, they are I they know...
1: are called Team Avatar for
0: <laughs> Team Avatar. I, I just I just who's... say Aang Gang. <laughs> But uh, there's, there's uh, some I'm not people sure. who would be curious
1: uh, with you for sure.
0: Oh, no. Well, I don't want to piss off uh, fans of a, an anime. Oh, no, I called it an anime. Ooh, uh, you've
1: done it. But... You've done it now.
0: <laughs> people are throwing their earbuds across the street right now. Absolutely. But, <laughs> but anyway, this first one at the very least is coming to theaters October 10th, 2025. So we've got a long time Oof. to wait for it. That's, but that, that's, that's because the bummer. They...
1: that kills the that kills the ability for it to hit like right now, the iron's hot and they are not going to hit that, which is a shame. And that's good. That's way outside that hot iron. That's three years from now. Oof. I don't know, because the because everything changes so fast that we'll see what yeah, happens well, in I three mean, years.
0: If if they just inked the deal on it now, I mean, it is going to take them a while to make it and animated movies move slow. But that does. Yeah, it does seem very slow uh the the turnaround time on uh disney products are seem a lot faster than that but maybe that's just me
1: oh only because disney products like the animated movies and disney feel like they're turning those out like every year because they are but the thing is they started them seven years ago so like they just haven't <laughs> talked True. to that you haven't seen that they've been working on them for almost a decade in some in some cases that's yeah, that's the difference. That's very true. So, and same with Pixar. You're like, oh, they they're just pumping these Pixar movies out. Like, no, they're not. They've been working on them for for half a decade or more. It's just that they haven't shown it until recently because they're about to release it. Which is that's just the way that works.
0: Yeah. Well, speaking of, it's just the way it goes. Uh, we have to get to the sad news. Uh, the biggest piece of pop culture news of the last couple of days, as far as where I sit and where I'm at on the internet. Uh, we lost Kevin Conroy, uh, the voice of Batman. One. Yeah, only 66 years old, which is very young. Uh, man man was an absolute legend. A lot of people, you know, everybody immediately says, well, it's Batman, right? He's the voice of Batman. He's the best Batman. Um, a lot of people don't know that he was actually just a great actor, too. A, a stage actor. He studied at Juilliard. He was roommates with Robin Williams there. Um, I I saw my, the thing that I saw on Twitter that really got me going. Uh, the day that we found out about his passing, I retweeted this lovely story that he tells to camera about working in a kitchen feeding folks during the 9 11 aftermath, mm-hmm. and so, somebody he's working with in the kitchen recognizes, Hey what do I know you from? Your voice sounds familiar. He's like, oh, I do voices. I... He's like, I knew it. You're Batman. And he <laughs> ho- hollers out to the dining room. Hey, you guys, you know who's been making your pancakes? It's Batman. And somebody just goes, bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> and Kevin Cottenroy calls out of the kitchen as Batman. I am vengeance. I am the night. I am Batman. <laughs> and there's just dead quiet. And then you hear one voice in the back. go. Holy shit, it was Batman. <laughs> so, but I mean, not just a great story, uh, just the way he tells that story, the timing, the gusto, most of all, the voices that he casually puts on for every character in that story. I just feel like I think Kevin Conroy was one of those extreme talents whose depths we never properly explored. I, he had like a hundred other performances in him that we probably never got to see, and we would have been delighted by.
1: It, I, I, I dare to say it, but we lost a real one, as they, as they would mark it. He was, he was a real one, as they can mm-hmm. say. He, he well, seemed I mean... like, like not only was he an enormous talent, but I've heard nothing but like he's, he was such a joyful person to, to exist basically like he he was a net good in the world and there's definitely actors and voice actors especially who they're like that maybe not wouldn't necessarily classify that but like he was one of those like no there was only there was only positive interactions with fans and and with other actors i mean you know you get to see mark hamill give his very heartfelt eulogy so to speak on twitter and that was
0: you know I saw a really heartfelt one just tonight from uh, Dietrich Bader, who also is a a voice actor Batman. And yeah, everybody, everybody universally says that he was an absolute sweetheart. And it's it, it sucks knowing that that good of a person has left us so soon. And as far as like playing Batman goes, the thing that I've always said about playing Batman, I've said this for years and I've got proof, I've got receipts that I've said this for years Um, when it comes to Batman, the suit does most of the work when you're playing him live action. The, the, the appearance of Batman does a lot of work as Batman. The real test is what you do as Bruce Wayne and you and I, these are my receipts. You and I did a whole routine about who played Batman best way back in the day. Mm -hmm. Buckle up kids, uh, like 10, more than 10 years ago, 11 or 12 years ago, uh, Chris and I did a web show where we argued about geeky stuff like who played Batman best in that particular one I think it was our first episode we thought one our it first would be ones. more funny yeah it was like one of the first handful of them we thought would it be more funny and more of a challenge if we had to choose unconventional choices for who played Batman best because the <laughs> obvious answer was Kevin Conroy
1: and I think we even said as such didn't we
0: I don't know if we said it in the episode. We should have in order I know to we've, establish I that it, we, it was a bit.
1: We might have said it in the episode where we were casting the new Batman. We're like, okay, if, if, if Batfleck is out, who would we cast? And we came up with our goofy little ideas and we're like, oh, Idris Alba and, and uh, Seth MacFarlane, John, Hamm, Christopher Walken, yeah. And I think in there we both agree that the best one was always Kevin Conroy. And like that's personally yeah. what I've been telling people, and was like, I always did my thing, where I'm like, okay, you know, if I'm listing them out, you're like, it, for me, it was like, here's, um, you know, I didn't like Val Kilmer, but I really hated Christian Bale, and 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 I thought, eh, you've got George Clooney's okay, but Michael Keaton and. Adam West are great, but then they're all, there's always the asterisk of like, well, they're always under Kevin Conroy because Kevin Conroy is the voice of Batman. That's just how it is.
0: Well, yeah, and uh, his Bruce Wayne is brilliant kind of for, I mean, because uh, like when, when I say that you have to focus on who Bruce Wayne is in order to get the right performance as both Batman and Bruce Wayne it's really funny now in the era of Robert Pattinson because, I don't know, if have you s- still not seen the movie?
1: I've not seen it, and I just, I'm at that point where I don't think I'm gonna. It's, I just don't really have fine. that interest.
0: If you're not interested, don't do it because it's like three hours long. And it's not really a Batman movie so much as it's like Seven or Zodiac with Batman in it. Mm-hmm. Um, which Which is exactly my kind of shit, so that's why I absolutely <laughs> adored it. But that's definitely not your shit, I don't think. Uh, Not usually, not as much. But I can tell you this much, the, the fun and kind of exciting thing about Robert Pattinson as Batman is that he's in the suit for almost the entire movie. He's only Bruce Wayne in public for one sequence of the movie, and... In that sequence, he looks so uncomfortable being out of the suit, being in public, being in sunlight. He looks so terrified for people to see his face. But Kevin Conroy, I think most people would agree, his nailing of the Batman voice right out the gate. I mean, the Batman voice in and of itself is terrific because... You know, he talks with his full diaphragm, his full power, his full timber. As Batman, he's powerful from from way down by his kneecaps. And then mm-hmm. as Bruce Wayne, he pulls it back and he talks kind of from his throat and from his nose just a touch. His Bruce Wayne isn't a costume. Everybody everybody loves to, you know, re- recount that speech from Kill Bill about Superman that Clark <laughs> Ken is a costume. Okay, fair enough, I'll accept that, but Kevin Conroy's Bruce Wayne was never a costume. It's his work phone call voice, is what yeah. it is. Batman is how he speaks to his friends and his enemies, who are almost basically also his friends. And then Bruce is the way he speaks on a conference call, which I think is such a wonderful choice. Yeah. And we'll never, we'll never see a Batman performance like that again.
1: No, and a lot of the other Batman are really good. Like, have you watched Harley Quinn, that the series on HBO?
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, which is yeah. Uh, terrific. And, all the and that's Dietrich Bader, that's right? Great. I be- I believe that's Dietrich Bader doing Batman on that one, yeah. Yeah,
1: that one's fun, and he does a fun job. And the thing is, he's doing almost a Kevin Conroy in many ways, which almost. is fine. I mean, it's perfectly good. I mean, all the vo- I like all the voices on that show. Um and I think that that's, I mean, that's why I'm happy that he did, you know, that actor did a little, a little nod to Kevin Conroy's passing. Like, yeah, they all know. I mean, every everyone who's played Batman knows. Like, this is, this is, see, that's the thing. Like, that's, I think one of the reasons what I really didn't like about Christian Bale is because Christian Bale kind of started the ultra gritty idea of Batman always has to talk like this. And it's like, well, that's just silly. And because we could see the difference so subtly done with Kevin Conroy for so many years, I'm like, well, this was still like the the gold standard of Batman. Like when you're doing Batman to Bruce Wayne, like he, he, he threads that needle so expertly. And we, I actually just a month ago showed my kids the first couple episodes of the animated series because they were curious and I'm like, okay, we're going to watch some of this original animated series. You know, and I forget just how quickly the show just slams into the kind of, you know, pulpy noir stuff in the, uh, the atmosphere. It's like we're not we're not messing around. We're gonna get right into the crazy villain of the week for sure. Because the first couple like doesn't like the Joker's not in. Like, like, wow, where's the Joker? Like, it's gonna take a while to get there. In fact, there's it's apparent that Mark Hamill had a role in it before he was the Joker. So that was kind of like. It was weird to see that or to hear that because my like the it was like the uncanny valley to my brain. I'm like, I'm watching an animated series and I hear Mark Hamill, but that's not the Joker, and it's not supposed to be like Joker doing a bit either. It's just Mark Hamill is one of the voice actors for the show, so they used him. Um, and of course, the like Heart of Ice is like the fourth episode, and it's like, wow, I didn't realize that's how fast they hit you with the Emmy, the, the yeah. Emmy episode, basically.
0: One of the best, one of the best, like five episodes of that entire show is one of the first 10 that they ever made which is nuts. yeah
1: although that's not my favorite episode i have two favorite episodes from animated series i'm assuming we're gonna have to mention that and yeah. one of my favorites that's just they're both fun one of them is um i think it's called almost got em,
0: almost it's... got em is gold standard absolutely yeah.
1: The one for those who don't know, it's where all the villains are in the hideout and they're all playing cards and they're telling the story of the closest they've ever got to getting the Batman, and they're all they're like, oh, I was so close. And then at the end of this episode, spoilers for you who haven't seen it, still watch it. Um, one of the villains takes off his mask and it's Batman, and then he beats them all up again, and, he, and it's like that's just so much fun. And like that's and that and that's what I like the show is that it got Batman as just like a force of nature and he's it's fun like that's like being batman can still be fun it's dark and gritty and emotional but there's a fun aspect to it like yeah batman is still so cool he will infiltrate the villain's poker game and beat him up just to show him like you'll never actually get the batman And then my other one, he's
0: listened to all of their stories about him first.
1: Yeah. And, and the other one is another one. A lot of people put up there is, um, I forget what this one's called, but it's the retelling. It's these, it's these group of kids who are talking and they are retelling how, who the Batman is based on what they've heard. And so you have one kid who said, Oh, my uncle worked for the museum of music. And like it's he retells it and it's an Adam West style, campy Batman. And, and this one girl's like, no, 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 no. That's not what it's like. Let me tell you what he's really like. And she retells essentially Dark Knight returns um, in that gritty, you know, big, chunky, you know, old Batman. And then as they're doing all this, then Firefly shows up and is attacking a building, and they see Kevin Conroy, Batman, show up and save them. And it's kind of that wink and a nod of like, this is the real Batman. And all the kids kind of agree to that, and I was like, okay, that I like that one because it's it's adorable, it's fun, and it also pays respect to you know the greats that came before, and and like all the different eras. To, it even has a little joke that like one of the kids is named Joel, and he's like, I I heard that the bat suit has nipples on it, and they all just go, shut up, Joel, and it's like, oh, you know, a little little mean spirited now, but you kind of look back and smile at it. Cause I got, it's like, oh, that's still a nod to obviously Joel Schumacher and putting nipples on the Batman.
0: That's a good one. I've, i I, probably wrong, but I think the title of that one might be legends of the dark Knight. That might be, yeah. Uh... I don't know. I might be wrong, but at any rate, um, well, goodbye, Kevin Conroy. Uh, we loved your performance as Batman that we knew and loved. Uh, I, I, I wish we could have seen more of Kevin Conroy as different roles. But uh, unfortunately, we we lose the people that we that we hope to have forever. Um, Having said that, though, the other person that died was uh, uh, Gallagher, which is less sad. Um, Mostly, (laughs) I I think it's
1: mostly just less sad because everyone thought he was he died a long time ago. He just kind of (laughs) felt like one of those where I mean, he well, his heyday was, you know, like probably 20 years ago. Um, if not oh, more, 40. 40. Was a, it was, like was late,
0: late seventies, early eighties.
1: Yeah, he was a force. Like, I, I used to enjoy a lot of his older stand-up routines because it was sharp and funny. I mean, it was on par with George Carlin in terms of like, let's break down language and let's challenge kind of like your perception of meanings of things. Because, and he would do that. Like, he had a great bit where he had you know this little like flip like, flip cards where he would be like, oh, like, here's how this word is pronounced. And then it's like, you add, he flips it to a different letter, and it's like, oh, and is it pronounced? No, it's not. And it went through this whole, you know, like, a dozen or more words. And it's just, for me as an English major, I'm like, that's my jam. Give me that. And then, of course, he's like, and I got to smash some watermelons as well. I'm like, okay. Not my, that's not the part I cared about. It was more, he he had some funny stuff, but then he was clearly stuck in time. And there's a, At a certain point, everyone just like moved past him because he became so iconic for the Smashing Watermelons gig that that was the punchline. So anytime he was shown as like a joke and like Family Guy or The Simpsons, it's like, oh, it's a it's a watermelon smashing joke and that's it. And then we move on. Like, that's all I have to do. And so once he became that, like that his legendary status is that's it. That's all he is he kind of couldn't reinvent himself past that so it's like well
0: and he, and he resented it he resented the fact that the watermelon smashing was the thing that made him famous instead like he he talked about that bit how if if you go back and rewatch the Sledge-O-Matic bit he's doing it like it's a commercial for a new kitchen doodad and it's just a big giant hammer and the way he saw it in his brain he was very self-aggrandizing that guy he, he was like, oh, no, it was this clever bit about consumer culture, but nobody wanted to see that. They all just wanted to see the chunks of watermelon fly. And it's like, well, yeah, dude, if this is a comedy <laughs> bit where chunks of watermelon fly, I'm sorry, but your clever, you know, societal commentary is going to get lost in chunks of watermelon.
1: But... I mean, his, it's one of the it's like it's a classic creative trap that so many creatives have fallen into where they'll struggle for years to get recognition for something whatever it may be. This is this is very prominent on YouTube, of course, with YouTube creators where they will they'll try something unique and original and it will get no traction. And then they will make something that they don't really care much about. It's like a throwaway gag or they'll do an episode about some hot popular thing and that's the thing that gets them the giant views and suddenly they have an audience that's like do the thing talk about the thing and you mean you see this is especially, the simpsons especially episodes, with, with say the
0: line what's that it's the simpsons episode say the line say the I line bart
1: uh, what a what a world
0: but anyway uh as far as gallagher goes though it was not <laughs> well i mean it wasn't just the resentment of uh being famous for the sledge with him he also right about 2010 or so he took a very hard right turn and his uh stand-up routines became became primarily homophobic jokes and racist jokes pretty much from top to bottom uh i remember he went down to mexico and tried to do like an entire hour just doing like basically speedy gonzalez jokes Oof. and surprise surprise didn't really go over very well and everybody who did catch it was like well this was kind of dog shit dude you're mm. not very good anymore and
1: mm-hmm.
0: he got more and more resentful and pissed off because oh well that's because people can't take a joke now he, he went down the dave Chappelle route of oh you're saying i can't say this and it's like no we're not saying you can't say that we're saying that when you say it it's not funny yeah. That's the difference, and because he was because he was already thirty years past his prime at that point, it was easy for him to kind of disappear and become more of a joke, not just for the sledgematic, but because of that Mark Maron interview. Uh, dig that up if you want a cheap laugh. By the way, <laughs> um, but but he was not without talent. Gallagher, I I actually own a Gallagher record.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: I happen to. Back back when I was a teenager, I stole all of my parents' vinyl records, and I bought this old stereo at a garage sale that had a turntable on it because it was from like 1982, and I listened to this Gallagher record for the first time. It was from 1980, and I must have listened to it at about in about oh boy probably 2004. Mm-hmm. I want to say. And it held up because he couldn't do the sledgematic in audio form. Yeah. He couldn't do the prop comedy with the big giant cards or you know his little doodads and shit. So it was just wordplay. It was just you know a pretty decent amount of absurd off the cuff kind of observation humor, and it worked. It was. I'll have to dig that that uh, record out for scientific purposes now to see if it still holds up because I got a new turntable recently. But,
1: Mm
0: -hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, the thing about Gallagher was that it worked for the entire family. My dad would throw it on when it was on MTV. They uh, replayed some of his stand-up routines because, Mm -hmm. hey, that was a way of getting a whole new audience like 10, 20 years later. And it worked. You know, my dad was laughing at it and I was laughing at it because... When you're six, Gallagher's funny because he's smashing watermelons. When you're Mm -hmm. 36, Gallagher's funny because can you believe this guy's routine is him smashing watermelons? (laughs) It's kind of like, it's like Weird Al Yankovic in that situation. When you're a kid, the songs are hilarious. When you're an adult, the songs are still fun, but really it's just the audacity of the man who built a successful career out of it.
1: Oh man, I, I still need to see that. I need to see the Weird Al movie I hear it's it's really good.
0: good. It's very, very good. Uh, because it's so committed to the bit through Mm -hmm. the whole movie. At no point does it become too winky and too, like, it doesn't ever soften and reach that point of like, okay, well, this is just a standard, you know, comedy. Now it's playing it straight through the whole thing, which is why it continues to be funny through the whole thing. is it
1: a joke that Daniel Radcliffe is in no way, uh a good representation of Weird Al because nothing I've seen I'm like this is a bit, right? Like he doesn't evoke Weird Al uh,
0: whatsoever. I don't think that it's I don't know if that's actually like an honest to goodness joke. I think what it is, the joke is that Daniel Radcliffe is who would play Al if the movie was an Oscar bait uh musical biopic gotcha. and that that's the perfect choice for the the perfectly straight-laced movie that it's a parody of.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: that's why it that's why it works. But taking that away, Daniel Radcliffe is doing the best possible job he can to, mm-hmm. to be Weird Al Yankovic. Like he's it's not a bit for him. He's mm-hmm. doing the voice as close as he could possibly get it, which is yeah. impressive considering his voice is several octaves lower than Al's. Mm-hmm he's got his accent down pretty well. He's got his mannerism down pretty well. Like there, there's an element to weird Al Yankovic. That's kind of this, uh, I don't know. There there's Radcliffe, I think has talked about this in interviews. There's an element of kind of wildness underneath (laughs) Al's, you know, kind of very happy go lucky, uh, persona. There's like this, this monster trying to get out every once in a while when he's on stage and that's kind of what Radcliffe latched onto and and it's exaggerated quite a bit in the movie, but yeah, that's a fun movie. <laughs> I really enjoyed it because it's so ridiculous. It's what is it uh... on by the way? <laughs> well, that's part of the joke, I think, is that it's on the Roku channel if oh, you boy. do you have a Roku device at all?
1: Absolutely not.
0: <laughs> well, you can download the app, I'm pretty sure. Uh, I happen to have a Roku TV, so I even when my TV is like in screensaver mode for the last month, it's been nothing but ads for that movie. But it makes me smile every time. It's the rare ad that I like seeing. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's a that's a that's one that would be worth downloading the Roku app for. Um, I'm not sure if that might be their only original movie at this point, but. Uh, I don't know why they decided to take it to the Roku app, but that seems like it's part of the joke.
1: I mean, it almost sounds like what time is it Dot com.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that might be it. Like it, it's one step away from that. Anyway, goodbye Gallagher, I guess. Um, <laughs> Come, goodbye Gallagher. We
1: wanted to talk about weird Al more.
0: I would rather talk about the other guy with a caterpillar mustache who was a big formative, piece of childlike comedy in my life but
1: still a big formative piece of childlike comedy
0: so uh with that in mind um we're ready to get the actual categories of the show started
1: (laughs) those are important categories what else what are the categories we got
0: uh well we're gonna start with the one i always start with is video games and that's why i have you on today sir um Mm. i don't know what's going on in the world of video games this week Other than, I know that you got a copy of Bayonetta 3. I did get a copy Um, of Bayonetta 3. I
1: won a copy of Bayonetta 3. Did you tuck into that at all? Which, that's a way to do it. Win win video games, win win free games, and you will feel better about getting games, basically, that you don't intend to play for months or years.
0: So you haven't started that one yet?
1: No, and I will not be starting that until, I would probably guess until at least December or more. And it's not because I don't have an interest in the game, because I do. It's one of those where I'm only going to play that at night. And I, I'm not. it's not like, I'm not going to play it around my kids, obviously. I'm not even going to play it when my wife is there, just because, like, it's not going to be anybody's jam but my own. Like, I'm going to be the only person oh, in the house yeah. that would be interested in this. And it's like, I understand. I've played the other two games. I technically worked on Bayonetta 2, kind of, like... Let me rephrase this, because I don't want people to think, oh, you really, like, no, I wasn't involved in any development, but I did get to do a play test of the game before it was out, and, like, I was one of a... F- I don't know how many people played the game before then, because obviously QA testers and stuff, but I'm going to guess I was one of the first, maybe... I'm going to ballpark and say one of the first 200 people to, to play and beat that game um, in the world, just because I'm guessing there's at least 100 QA testers who've been playing through it longer than I had, but I had to do a play test for, like, a... Uh, kind of marketing purposes and like, you know, I did a test to see like, can we really bring this to our market? And like one of my managers is watching behind me and like the opening cutscenes where Bayonetta is straddling the centaur, you know, angelic being like slapping its butt and like grinding on it. And she just looks like, oh my gosh, do we need to change any of this? I said, no, we we can't, we can't (laughs) change any of this. This has to come out exactly as it is. You know, otherwise, no one will want the game. Like, this is the reason why people want this game. Like, people want Bayonetta to be Bayonetta, which is over the top and very just like it's its, it's, its own breed of of interesting. So, all that said, like, I'm interested in Bayonetta 3, and I was so sad to hear all of the kerfluffle that happened right before it came out, and that is a big big sad foghorn of a like it made everyone look like jerks basically very very few people came out of that not looking like jerks
0: yeah i I talked a little bit about it on the show and my my main takeaway was well great this this happened at the exact moment to make this game like the most pirated game of the year which great I like
1: when it came out like and I'm sure you already mentioned it but to to quickly touch on it for those who don't know um what is her name Helena Carter I think it is that sounds right
0: you're thinking that's Helena Bonham Carter right it's Helena Taylor
1: thank you Helena Taylor yeah not Helena Bonham Carter but Helena Taylor the original voice of Bayonetta she she was replaced in Bayonetta 3 and we kind of all assumed this was going to happen for some reason she was replaced she said it was not a, a mutual amicable decision basically it's that she was not paid a fair wage she then made a, a a pretty incendiary twitter thread breaking nda as hard as you can possibly break it to say that they offered her an insulting wage rate which she claimed was four thousand dollars and this is where me having a back like insider info i immediately said something right here and a lot of people were already running with. It. I know, like, I know James Stephanie Sterling ran with this and did a like three episodes, I think, in a row about the
0: whole. I, I ran thing. with it, and I I went on an absolute rant about the four thousand dollars being an ab, you know, a complete insult and stuff. And boy, did I feel pretty stupid when the rest of the story came out.
1: And I'm sitting here going like, and I'm thinking like, damn, I can't talk about this publicly because I would probably be in trouble if I made a big thing about it, and I somehow got. Notice because I because I didn't know this particular s- details, but I can tell I can tell you because I I mean this is not a secret that I worked on Star Fox Zero, and it's also not a secret that Star Fox Zero happened to have voice acting, and it's also also not a secret that Star Fox Zero happened to be a game that was pre- like w- which was developed primarily by Platinum Games, who you may also 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 know made Bayonetta, so when I heard four thousand dollars was her offer. For a game that that length, I immediately thought something's not right here. Someone's lying somewhere, and I don't know where it is because while Bayonetta is not a mega seller, Star Fox is also not a mega seller. In terms of like, it's not a Breath of the Wild or a Mario Odyssey, but it's going to do well because it's on the Switch. And I got to think it four thousand for how many hours? That doesn't make any. That that literally doesn't add up in my mind yeah, so it means it sounded like a made-up number and to me i i hear that and i go and i did my quick math and i'm like and i'm not gonna say publicly how much we we offered voice actors for Star Fox zero but i can tell you that it was not four thousand for whatever that was not the rate because i knew the rates and i'm like if those are the rates in 2012 and the rates in 2022 something's again not adding up not 2012 2015 like i'm like the race of 2015 2022 something doesn't add up it's either a there was going to be very little dialogue from bayonetta in the game which is possible they were streamlining it so it was all action or there was like no need for her voice that didn't seem plausible to me b we're missing details on this c maybe platinum really did screw her on that or d it was just wholesale made up. And that's why I'm like, I feel like I have relevant information to this story, but I'm going to let it play out. And it played out in the worst way possible. I mean, this is... Oh,
0: yeah, it just kept getting worse and worse. <laughs> anyway, uh when you get to Bayonetta 3 in December, you be sure to let us know what you thought of it. I but will. Until I hear then, it's, I hear it's a...
1: delightful. I hear it's a, it plays great. A lot of people are pissed because the story... Changes what they believe the character of Bayonetta was. Um, but I'll see what I think about it. Mostly because I forgot everything that happened in the last two games. So it's not going to affect me in the same way. Because those games are <laughs> absolutely bonkers. Pants on head crazy. And they're fun. And I don't remember a damn thing about what happened. Other than, I'm pretty sure she's a time witch.
0: Something like that. Some kind of like sexy that, yeah. time witch.
1: Yeah. <laughs> we actually, I remember... I remember bringing in Bayonetta 2 to work on the Wii U um, a couple years back, and I was showing some people again, like, "Yeah, you should try this game, Bayonetta 2." And one one coworker she comes up, she's like, "Isn't that that Sex Witch game?" And I was like, uh, actually, you, you actually <laughs> described it as accurately as you possibly could. Yes, it is the Sex Witch game." And she wasn't like, "Boo on you!" It was like, "Oh no, is that the set? Yeah, that you're. Yes, it's the Sex Witch game." It it doesn't hide that.
0: And that's why it stands to reason why you wouldn't want to show it to either your kids or your wife, because it's a real case of, what are you playing here? Exactly.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Excuse me? I mean, I ran into something similar. I was playing the Final Fantasy VII Remake on PS4 um, like half a year ago, and I had not thought about what the female characters wear in that, because I'm not thinking of what Tifa's wearing because I'm thinking of Tifa on the PlayStation One, and yeah. that's it's, which is it's different. Like, it's different, and so when Tifa shows up in PlayStation Four, my wife from across the room gives me the stare of "You're in trouble now." And my kids are watching, and she just mouths, "What are you playing?" And I'm like, "Oh crap! Oh, oh crap! Baskets!" <laughs> like okay, and so you know, after that play session, I had to stop. I'm like okay, kids. Uh, I don't think I'll be playing this with you guys anymore. Why? Like, well, they're just some things that feel like you need to be a little... This game is for teens, at least, and you're not teens. So come back in a few years. (laughs) Because...
0: I got in trouble for for something like that recently. Not for a game, but uh, because I was just... I just threw on an old like uh, that 70s show. That's just one of my comfort watches that I'll throw on because I really like I really like Topher Grace and I really like the 70s. And I, I if I remember right, it was it was a case of I'm really into Topher Grace's new show, Home Economics. And mm-hmm. I was waiting for the new episode. and I'm like, well, there's not a new one yet. So I'm just going to throw on that 70s show and, and let that play in the background while I do some writing or something like that. Mm. And, you know, my, my son kind of casually got into it like, well, what's this about? And I'm like, well, they sit in their basement and they hang out and it's the 70s. And th- then I realized, oh, right. It's that 70s show. This isn't this isn't good yep. uh, for an eight year old to watch. <laughs> this is uh, I, I found that out a little too late. So that was fun. But anyways, back to video games, uh, video you have games. some 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 current video game news
1: the most current news, of course, this podcast I'm assuming is either what Monday or Tuesday of this week, um, mm-hmm, in or yeah. in it, Monday or Tuesday of the week that Pokemon Scarlet and Violet come out, Generation Nine Pokemon games. It's a big week because I mean it's always a big week when a Pokemon like a main a main generational Pokemon game releases, and it feels like we just went through this because we did just go through this Gen Eight was not that long ago. This is the second mainline Pokemon games on the Switch. Not the second Pokemon games on the Switch, mind you. Because good lord, they have pumped out games on the Switch. We have got Let's Go Eevee and Let's Go Pikachu to start off things. We got a new Pokemon Snap. We've got a Legends Arceus, which is one of the best Pokemon games in ages. We got remakes of Diamond and Pearl, which were not the best Pokemon games in ages. We got Sword and Shield. Sword and Shield each got two DLC packs added to them. Instead of a third version, which is kind of what they usually do with that sort of stuff. Plus a remake of Pokemon Dungeon. Uh, in Pokemon, like what? Super Ranger Dungeon? Like that. I can't remember. I hear it's good for those who like it. Plus there's got to be a bunch of other stuff. Poke, in Tournament, the fighting game for Pokemon. Pokemon Unite has come out. Like this. They got Pokemon stuff on the Switch. So... Pokemon is about ready to sell probably another 20 million copies of a game this year alone, and it's kind of disgusting to think about that. But like, uh, Scarlet and Violet are already, I think, the most pre-ordered game on the Switch. So based on pre-order, I mean, some people are like, what if it fails? I'm like, you, it literally can't because the pre-orders are so astronomically high. There is no possible. There's no possible scenario where it fails. Like there's just not Pokemon while it well, doesn't make you, the best games. And you got Black games, Friday
0: coming up too. What's that? And you've got Black Friday coming up too on top of that.
1: Yeah, like it's not a coincidence that you get the new Pokemon games uh, like a week before Black Friday, um a month before Christmas. They're not they're not dummies. And they are going to sell a lot of these. And they have also done a really weird... It's always fascinating to see how they market these new Pokemon games. Because, like, uh, they don't market them in any way that makes any logical sense. Because it's almost like nobody knows what... Nobody seems to know what Pokemon fans want. Pokemon fans don't know what they want. Pokemon doesn't know what the fans want. Nobody knows anything. They're just doing it. And so, like... We're about to go in, we're a week away, and if you've been staying clear of leaks, of which there are leaks, but they are not as easy to get to as you usually do, fine. Like, it's not like the entire Pokédex has been cracked open and just is everywhere. I'm shocked that it hasn't, honestly. It's amazing that it hasn't. It, there's no... I don't understand how it hasn't happened, because that always happens like a month before it Like, I knew all of Sword and Shield's Pokédex a month before it came out. I don't know all of... All of Scarlet and Violet's Pokédex. I know a couple because I looked up some spoilers to see what... Because the main thing that baffles me, we have three starter Pokémon, and they're pretty good starters this time. Like, I actually did have to sit for a long time and decide. You've got Sprigatito, who is a, a a grass-type cat, and it's delightful because you can't say Sprigatito without enjoying yourself. Because this <laughs> is... this like um, The Paldea region is supposed to be like... Analogous to Spain, so like Spregatito, like, ah, oh, that's, that's a good name. Uh, you have Fuecoco, who is the fire type. He looks like a little, like, fire dragon crocodile guy. And you have Quaxley, the water type, who looks like a duck with, like, a quaff that almost looks like a sailor's hat. Like, almost like Donald Duck's little sailor's cap. And it's like, "Mm, these are actually three really banging starters. What are their middle evolutions and what are their final evolutions? And we don't have those. We don't know what they are. I've seen spoilers. I've seen what Sprigatito and Quaxley evolve into. And I'm like, actually, those are pretty tight. Not what I expected, especially for Sprigatito. They keep at least the the, choice uh, localized names for those. But... Quaxley also like Quaxley's pretty dope. I think I'm team Quaxley now just because like I already kind of liked him. I already decided I'm getting, I'm gonna get a Quaxley. I'm gonna name him Launchpad. It's gonna be
0: great. Um, I'm very very surprised that you're not going with the with a cat. Uh, just I am too. I am too. And
1: I mean part of it is because, um, I. I think because when I saw what Sprigatito evolved into, it wasn't my thing, and I'm not going to spoil it for anyone else who wants to see. Um, it doesn't, it's not a shock when you see what it looks like, but it's not, it's one of those where I go, oh, they're starting to kind of have a type in that, like, they have mm-hmm. certain evolutions that reach this type, and I don't quite love it, but they go with it because it's, it's strange. I can't even explain it without spoiling it. So it's like, I think Sprigatito is going to be divisive. I think Quaxi's evolution is going to be a, a big, like, yeah, okay. Um, and I don't know what Fue Coco turns into. And that one's a big, that's the big question mark, because that one has the potential to be either the biggest, dopeest, stupidest, wonderfulest thing, or the biggest, baddest, hardest, coolest, wonderfulest thing as well. Either way, Fue Coco is going to be straight fire. Pun absolutely intended. <laughs> Yeah, um,
0: absolutely literally. Yeah. But
1: but the other thing that baffles me is that we're about to go into the first decision you have to make obviously before what's your starter? You have to decide if you're getting Scarlet or you're getting Violet. What's the difference? Uh there's always a difference and we know the box legendaries which are oh what's the name? It's Maridon and something else it's like basically they're they're motorcycle dragons kyle we have motorcycle yeah
0: dragons. i i talked about this when uh when they first uh, announced uh, a lot of this stuff when they first announced paldea and they gave us the first glimpses of them in their weird motorcycle forms and i was like that's weird uh really really weird but also kind of enjoyable to look upon
1: it took me a, a hot minute to get used to it, and now I'm like, okay, I like them both. I li- I think both the box legendaries look really cool. Um, I don't necessarily mind the fact that you're going to be riding around like like a transformer, and I'm like, okay, fine. I'm this is different and weird, and also it. Ultra confirms that there's not going to be TM or HM's again in this game, so you don't have to deal with surf and fly and all that. It's like, nope, you have a lit- you ride on a literal dragon, you can run around like on a motorcycle, you can go across water, and you can fly. Uh, all right, I'm fine with that. That sounds pretty cool. But we don't know what the other difference is between the game. We know that there's different professors between the two games. One one. Mm. I mean, and everything, of course, is like... If there's any... You see two Pokemon, and one is, like, red, and one is purple. Like, oh, you know. There's, like... I think it's Armor Rogue is this red armored ghost. That's a Scarlet. And then, um... Cerulege is a purple, like, bladed armor. That's clearly going to violet. Like, you know those things. But what else? There's supposed to be a bunch of other... Like, every Pokemon game has at least 10 to 20... Version exclusives, we don't know what those versions exclusives are. I feel like we need to know that. Because I have to buy one of these games and I need to know what am I missing out on if I buy one, not the other. And granted, you can trade for it, but I don't like it. I don't like having to do that. I like to know what I have in the game I bought. And so we don't know. I don't know what the other key differences is. What is the difference between having these two professors? Is it just basically a cosmetic? Is there a difference to the story? Is there a difference to any of the landscape? Is there a difference to anything? I've heard rumbles, and it's really weird that they have not made this clear. That Scarlet seems to be a more primitive, like, ancient, prime, primeval-type setting in t- some of the Pokemon. And Violet is more of a futuristic, like, crazy, future-robotic-stuff setting. So I'm like, what? is going on and why haven't you said so because they're like well, well let's talk about terrestrializing I'm like no 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 no. i don't care about that gimmick that sounds okay it sounds delightful and and beautiful like terrestrialized pokemon and the whole gimmick in this one instead of is it a matter they make a pokemon no it's not making pokemon are they giant giant pokemon no are they pokemon that look like they're made of diamonds Yes, that's the one. They look like they're made
0: of dust. Yeah, they're like crystallized. Yeah. Yes, they're
1: crystallized, and and each Pokemon, and this is one of those where if you are a completionist, already trying to complete the Pokédex, which I've heard rumblings that this one once again has about four hundred Pokemon in the game, which means that it will be you know probably 600, 800 by the time the DLCs come out, probably about six hundred altogether, I think is about that's roughly. So many. Which, like, and that's not, I mean, obviously there's a, there's about a thousand Pokemon, I think, at this point, or more, including all the different regional variants, um, but I know Sword and Shield, I think, it, like, the uh, the Sword and Shield base Pokedex was 400, and then each of the DLC had a 200 added, but the, there was a lot of overlap in that Pokedex, so I think altogether it was about 600 Pokemon total. In, in by the end of Sword and Shield and the DLC. So, this one, like it sounds like they're basically doing the same thing. We don't know what Pokemon those are, and that again is a pretty important thing. We know some, but a, for a completionist, the fact there's going to be like probably 600, 400 to 600 Pokemon, and each version can not only be shiny, which some people get into shiny hunting, which is its own crazy fun slash hell. Now you can literally get a terastalized version of every Pokemon. Not every Pokemon is terastalized. You have to get the terastalized version of it, and there's 18 types, so you have to get the, you. And each Pokemon can have one of each 18 types, basically. So if I'm listening to this correctly, and I'm probably not because I'm pretty sure there's been some confusion on how they've explained this, but literally every Pokemon can have a terastalized type of literally any other type, which is bonkers. And I don't know how that's going to work from, like, a gameplay standpoint. If it's going to be fun or if it's just going to be like, oh, that's too much to handle. And from a completionist standpoint, if there's, like, nope, not even going to worry about getting 18 times
0: everything. It's like, I don't need to get 400 times 18. No, thank you. That's The the numbers are boggling my mind. It's so much.
1: Yeah. Um, And, like, I can then understand, like, the fact that they actually have to make a model... For each of the 400-plus Pokémon that is in each of the 18 types, that means they have to have a base model plus 18 other models. Like, wow, actually, that is quite a lot of work. And granted, the Terrastalized versions are... They're all the same, so, like, all the water, like, the little crystal is, like, blue, like, looks like a water spout. If it's a dragon, it looks like a crystal dragon head. Like, it's, it's really cool. I love that aesthetic, and that's kind of like it makes me think okay trastlizing is not going to annoy me as much as dynamaxing which i thought was really just not my bag this
0: feels
1: good <laughs> they have not shown but a lot what of what i've
0: seen of it, it it looks really cool it looks uh it it looks like something that uh would it it, may, it makes them look special without distracting away from their actual like baseline aesthetic if that makes sense.
1: Yeah. They have so far not shown a lot of the new Pokemon or regional variants of Pokemon because I've mentioned that there's going to be regional variants of a handful because there always are. They showed a regional variant of Wooper, which needed something to make it special. And that's why I like the regional variants in general. They take Pokemon that no one really knows or cares about as much anymore except for the diehard fans. And then they give them a new type and a new form and they suddenly become new and interesting and they've only shown one regional form and like very few new pokemon and a lot of them feel like very gimmicky in terms of like one's a literal like mimic treasure chest type thing and i'm like oh i definitely don't care about that because i'm not i don't really like a gimmick pokemon not not my thing So other people love it Especially uh, when the,
0: the one that I was familiar with, uh, from when they announced all of this stuff a couple months back, I will say that I did fall in love with the bread puppy. Fido is too Fido is my
1: man, obvious. And I mean, everyone, I mean, I literally shot up awake in the middle of the night and said, oh, He's a purebred. And I, <laughs> ran to, I ran to Twitter and I was pissed that everyone had already made that joke. I'm like, Dang it. And if he doesn't evolve into something called purebred, I will actually be shocked and a little disappointed. Um, you know me. I like cats. So, like, Sprigatito, I'm like, tight. What else we got? And they're like, well, we got at least four different dogs. And they just keep showing dogs. I'm like, oh, frick. Stop showing me dogs. They just showed a new ghost dog. And I'm like, I don't want it. I don't want any of these stupid dogs. So, again, too many, too many gimmicks. I... I like LeChonk because they have a pig named LeChonk. And I'm like, mm, that sounds great. It's all right. It it also seems like, you know, it's unfortunate when they show off a lot of the new stuff and it's like, this is like the, the regional rat. And I think that's kind of what LeChonk as this normal pig is going to be. Like he's the taking the spot of like the regional rat. Cause every region has like a ratata or a Pat rat or a, uh, like a Zigzagoot or something. That's like, this is your basic normal type Pokemon that you get very early in the game. That's going to help you kind of hit the early challenges. And you box that sucker as soon as you get basically past the first gym. Because you're going to have way better stuff. And I'm like, oh boy, I hope Lechonk somehow survives. Like, I hope his evolution is like, nah, you keep Lechonk with you. Because Lechonk turns into like LeChamp or something. I don't know. That's my that's my one big hope for the game uh if I may be so bold as to hope for anything in such a game as a grown ass man <laughs> I, for this children's game is that's all I want is for LeChonk to be a lechamp
0: <laughs> well that's what we're all interested in that's what we that's what we all hope for uh even if we are past the age of thirty and playing Pokemon which who you know who among us isn't it's uh This is going to be the biggest game of the year, I would say, for the Switch, right? I mean, for the
1: Switch, yes. There's no other game on the Switch that's going to be quite as big. Because this is already a a year with some big old games. I mean, there's big games in terms of, like, fan bases of, like, like, indie hits and stuff. I mean, there's Persona 5 finally is hitting the Switch. And Bayonetta 3 is finally being released. And Sonic Frontiers is actually, uh, like, a lot of Sonic fans are loving it. That just hit all the platforms. And I actually really want to get that one. Um, this was the year that we got the Kawabunga Collection and Shredder's Revenge, which I finally just got my copy of Shredder's Revenge after Limited Run Games finally got off their ass and sent me my damn physical copy. And I was so happy to get it because I could immediately unfollow Limited Run and, and unsubscribe from their stuff so that I didn't miss any details upon when my damn game was coming and I finally have it and I don't ever have to look at them again because I don't like them and I'm not getting into it now. But it's like, we have some big stuff. Plus, of course, you've got the new God of War, Ragnarok, which I hear is, again, unbelievably stunning, amazing. Elden oh, yeah. Ring came out this year. Good Lord, Elden Ring came out this year, Kyle. This is a year, four games, and Pokemon is about ready to eat them all for lunch, and it's kind of crazy.
0: Well, we look forward to that coming out on, uh, the, just, just, uh, on Wednesday, right? Uh, the 18th, so Friday. So this
1: Friday, I mean,
0: maybe some oh, people, Friday. I mean,
1: you're going to see street dates get broken for sure. So it'll be out <laughs> any day now. I think actually in Australia, actually street date is like, is Wednesday. So a lot of people are doing the normal thing where they switch their, their switches console over to like the Australia region. Cause you can do that in some, somehow, and change right. your region. So if people are going to be doing that, not a surprise. So we're gonna know everything about the game with it before it comes out still. But it's gonna it's coming up to the wire.
0: Well, the only real thing that we had to talk about in movies was uh again another Big McGillo release, kind of like the the Pokemon uh of movies this week, which was Black Panther Wakanda Forever. Um yeah, it it released and uh, this was my first trip back to the theater since, uh, late September, because as everybody has heard a bunch of times, I broke my foot and I've been trapped in the house for, uh, quite a while, but wanted to take the kids to see this one. Cause this was, I would say the most anticipated of, uh, phase four of Marvel it's, uh, definitely this is the i would say uh having gone to see it today this is the one that feels the most like that pre endgame magic of this is this is one of those movies that uh can stand up on its own on rewatches you know a handful of years later i don't know if i can really say that about a lot of phase four i've rewatched most of them and Mm -hmm. while black widow was a lot of fun It's one of those movies where, oh, the, you know, the opening hour or so is kind of a different movie from the closing 30 minutes or so. And then there's stuff in the middle that's fun. Uh, Shang-Chi, kind of the same thing. The opening hour of that movie is a bunch of fun. The last half hour of it can get a little gloppy with, boy, there's just a lot of shit flying around here. And (laughs) I'm not really sure where we're at at this point. Uh, they've all kind of felt that way. Um, Thor Love and Thunder was, uh, to me, it, it, the, the advantage of Taika Waititi doing a Thor movie is that it has a baseline fun going throughout the whole thing. At no point does it get bogged down with, all right, we're just going to like throw shit at the wall and see what sticks for the last, you know, 40 minutes or so. The disadvantage that I'm starting to grow weary of with Taika Waititi in the Marvel universe, and, and really all all the Marvel movies have this problem to a degree, is the the longer that we poke fun at how kind of ridiculous all of this fantasy ephemera is, the less we can really take it seriously once the stakes kick in. And the Taika Waititi's two Thor movies are a lot of fun, and that's why they are, I would say, better than the first two, which are very self-serious. But his two movies also have this kind of winking idea of like, look, we all know this is a bunch of bullshit, right? Like, none of this actually matters. Anyway, let's get into the big dramatic scene of the movie, and it's like, no, you can't do that. You can't. You can't try to make me cry after essentially like nodding along with me that this is all a bunch of bullshit. And none of it matters because it's based on a dumb comic book. Um, black Panther Wakanda forever doesn't have any of that because it is arguably, you know, like the first black Panther, it's one of the better of these standalone series that they've come up with in the last, you know, in, in the last uh, half a dozen years of making these movies. And The big thing is that because of of the plot of these movies, Wakanda being the setting, they can set these movies separate from the rest of the Marvel Universe without it feeling oddly conspicuous that everyone else is missing. There didn't have to be a big line of dialogue like, well, where where are the Guardians of the Galaxy during all of this? Well, they happen to be off planet doing something important right now they don't have to do that because this is an isolationist society and they deal with their own stuff and that helps quite a bit cuz these movie this movie especially very self-contained more self-contained than i would say any other marvel movie in the last 5 years uh which that really helps it stay focused it doesn't get bogged down in well hey look who this is it's this is somebody that you recognize from something uh they they don't have to do that they they have plenty of characters that are like that uh you know without getting into any specifics there are a couple of characters that have their own stories going on and you could see that it very much feels like a comic book crossover event in as much as there are three or four different comic book series that are happening within this movie but none of them take away from the main story long enough for it to be distracting yeah um the movie uh, is doing really well right now it did 84 million on friday alone which is great that's i mean it's great to hear because marvel really hasn't
1: had that sort of big hit for Oh boy! Since so, I mean, kind of Endgame. I mean, I know that that Love and Thunder did okay, and um,
0: it did pretty good. Yeah,
1: yeah, and and Multiverse of Madness did okay, but like I know that Eternals took a big old oops, and Shang Chi was like a moder moderate success based on the fact that that was even more obscure than pretty much any other previous right. movie.
0: Right. And, and Black Widow kind of got kneecapped just by lockdown. I mean, so did Eternals to a degree. But yeah, I mean, the, the first Black Panther did 75 million on its opening Friday. Granted, there are a lot of factors at play, things like inflation, post pandemic kind of withering of box office numbers in general. I mean, if the pandemic had never happened, would this movie have hit over 100 million for just Friday alone? probably not but it would have gotten a lot closer than it did yeah uh but it's projected to do 175 million this weekend domestically about 305 million worldwide uh the first the first black panther did 205 million domestic in its opening weekend but it had a lot of legs people i would i would i would predict wakanda forever does not have the staying power that the first one did. People went back to see that one three, four times. And this one, I don't think they will primarily because it has to function as a eulogy for Chadwick Boseman and for T'Challa. It's, and, and the whole movie is essentially, it's not just like a kiss off, like opening 10 minutes and then, all right, we're off on our adventure. The whole movie is a meditation on, how do you heal a broken heart, essentially? Which is, to its credit, that makes it a much more powerful story than any of Phase 4 is by comparison as well. I think that's probably why it works a lot better than they do. It's just, I, I can't get over how much more this feels like a, a capital M Marvel movie than anything pre anything post-Endgame has to this point. Uh, but I will say the first movie holds together a lot better as a standalone movie than this one does. This does feel a bit soggy at times in the middle and at the end, it's like two hours and 38 minutes. I think Mm -hmm. it's really long and it felt long. My kids were kind of starting to swim in their reclining seats a little bit by the end. And it's also got kind of return of the King syndrome where we hit the climax, we hit the ending, and then it kind of just keeps going for 15 or 20 minutes because mm-hmm. it's got a lot of stuff to sew up. And one thing that my wife brought up, though, uh, because a big factor of this movie, and I think I can talk about this a little bit because it's in the trailers, it's in the posters and whatnot. Uh, Namor and his culture are portrayed by uh, Mexican and Latin American actors. Specifically, uh, they have a Mayan Uh, ancestry and design and aesthetic. And so this is a movie that has the potential to capture several audience segments. Obviously, the first movie captured the imaginations of black Americans in a way that no Marvel movie had to that point. And that's kind of why it was such a monster at the box office was it was a case of representation does matter financially as well as narratively and emotionally and not only does this one have the entire realm of african culture unspoiled by white colonization and this kind of afrofuturism fantasy element to it this one also presumably has the audience uh that that uh is represented by namor mm-hmm. and my wife happens to come from the specific area of mexico that it's uh it's not very often represented in pop culture when when american audiences think mexico they think mexico city they think michoacan oaxaca they they never think uh yucatan which is where my wife is from and where and where namor and his uh civilization come from so it's it's a different type of mexican culture and and mayan culture specifically i mean just th- this is my quick very one sentence elevator pitch of what's different about Yucatan culture versus the rest of Mexico. Um, Their tamales are wrapped in banana leaf instead of corn husks. It's a lot more tropical. It's a lot more, it's a lot more indigenous, a lot less uh, influenced by, you know, the, the conquistador invaders at the time. And like, I mean, my mother-in-law speaks Spanish. She also speaks Mayan and Mayan is all over the movie they are speaking it there are three different subtitles that are all colored differently in the movie oh, yellow for uh, yeah yeah uh yellow for the Wakandan language uh blue for uh for Mayan when Namor and his people speak it and then uh French pops up quite a bit so that's uh white and i thought that was a really cool thing that they added to the movie so that you could see the different uh languages at play even if you can't like recognize them by ear very well mayan is a very very uh different language than some people think of when they think of mexican culture Mm -hmm. people think spanish and people can recognize spanish mayan is man it's a rough language to try to understand if you i mean my wife doesn't speak it really so when her parents get angry at her and start like Yelling at her in Mayan. Yeah, that's when, you know, things are serious. But but yeah, I mean, Mayan culture were taught in bad public schools here in the U.S. that Mayan culture disappeared hundreds of years ago, along with the Incans and the Aztecs. And they're all those are all dead uh, indigenous civilizations. You know, do a report on them. Ha ah, ha ha. But not really. Mayan culture is alive and well. And this movie is tapping into it the same way the first movie tapped into, uh, African culture. And it's a very smart move. It's a very cool way of making Namor relevant instead of, you know, the, the trap of using Namor is people see him and they're going to think, oh, you know, that's Marvel's version of Aquaman. Ah ha ha. Even though Namor was actually, I think a character first, but but this is a way to make him relevant to an entire new audience segment while also introducing him in the black Panther sequel. And there's a lot of conversations about how the, both of these cultures have been, have had nothing but a, a tumultuous relationship with colonizers, with, you know, the surface people for Namor's people uh, with, you know, white, Uh, invaders for Wakanda and hey you know we're not so different you and I maybe we should get together and and fight back kind of thing and that makes Namor a better character much like Killmonger he's a he's a villain even might not be the right word for Namor in this but he's an antagonist with uh, he's got a point and he's not wrong he's just he's become too radicalized and Continuing that thread from the first one, obviously, that stuff resonated so much with people that it was a no-brainer for them, I guess, to bring it back for this one. Yeah. So, it's got a lot going on for it. It's It makes it a heavy watch. It's uh, There are a lot of cry moments. There are a lot of very, like deep emotional resonant moments. Uh, Angela Bassett absolutely tears it up as the queen. She didn't have a whole lot to do in the first one. Arguably I rewatched recently and it was odd that they cast Angela Bassett for what was essentially two big scenes. She gets a lot more in this one. I mean, really everybody from the first movie gets a lot more to try to fill the gap left by uh, Bozeman. That is kind of the, the problem with the movie in terms of rewatchability, in terms of, you know, in terms of audience friendliness, if you will, is the idea of boy, every time I watch this movie, I'm just going to be really sad that Chadwick Bozeman left us as early as he did and that we didn't get him for this movie because to see Chadwick Bozeman like duking it out with Namor, that would have been something and it would have been. And he would have been great in it. And his presence, the lack of his presence is felt throughout the movie purposefully, but also it is a problem that they just can't, you know, you can't step over it and they don't. Um, Ryan Coogler did a great job with this one. I will say, I think I probably like the first Black Panther better, but this one has a lot of, a lot of new stuff going for it particularly with namor and his culture and it was a lot of fun um a lot of great design stuff in it uh, a lot of great action set pieces uh yeah it, it was it was just an exciting time to go to a marvel movie that didn't have you going huh Boy, they I, I get the feeling that this might have started its life as one of the Disney Plus TV shows. This didn't feel like that. Yeah. This was a movie with a capital M. And and thank goodness, because there have been a couple that, an- another thing with Thor, Love and Thunder that I felt is, uh, you know, these are these are fun. They're colorful. They take place in weird, like, you know, space areas that look like they were spray painted on the side of a van mm-hmm. in the 70s. And that's all fun at times. It does kind of look like it has the production design of like a Nickelodeon original series in spots. Like you can really mark the points in Thor love and thunder where boy, you shot this in a Best Buy parking lot. Didn't you? Uh, Wakanda forever never feels that way. It it has plenty of that, plenty of that trademark Marvel stuff where it's like, well, yeah, you shot this in a big giant green screen space and that's just that's just the way these movies are made now and we can't get over it but but this one does have a texture to it that it it just looks more like a movie than the last couple of these did which thank goodness cuz we're this is I think the end of phase 4 and they've got they've shown a bunch of their plans for what's coming up and it sounds like they're going really big and it could be messy so i'm i'm glad i'm glad that this might be a good pivot point for them to get back to business with things that are a little less uh i mean I think of eternals eternals is a movie that looks like it was shot during the pandemic you know there there are five people in it essentially all of it is shot either on a back lot that's dressed up to look like the woods or Or the back lot that's dressed up to look like a beach, and that's about it. And there's not a whole lot going on in it. This movie felt big, it felt epic, it felt like it actually should cost, you know, a quarter of a billion dollars, Mm -hmm. whereas that one didn't. So it's... I like to think this is a good sign that the Marvel movies are headed back to back to where they were a couple of years ago before we had to worry about you know po- possible outbreaks on set and whatnot although that is still a worry now of course but yeah um yeah much much more excited to go see this movie for 15 bucks than something like that essentially but uh yeah that was the only big movie news the only other uh, stuff we had was uh, uh, this was a little thing I call these curios when they pop up. Just a no big news story, just a really fun, cool thing that the internet found this week. And this one was actually given to us by uh, Guillermo del Toro. He was trying to entice folks to check out his new Netflix series called a uh, Cabinet of Curiosities. And he, you know, Del Toro has a laundry list of projects that he was signed on for over the years that never ended up happening. Mm-hmm. most famously like he did he had his two movie adaptation of The Hobbit that I honestly feel the strongest about that one because I feel like his tone would have been a good departure from Peter Jackson's. but alas, we didn't get that. Uh, we didn't get Hellboy Three either, unfortunately. We didn't get Justice League Dark. Uh, we didn't even get... He was signed up for Man of Steel 2 for a bit. Really? Uh, which would have been interesting. Mm-hmm. But most people would probably tell you that the crown jewel of unrealized projects from Guillermo del Toro would be his adaptation of HP Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness. Yep. And that fits so well with with his with his uh, tone and his visual style. He always seems fascinated with a mixture of fantasy and horror that really taps into Lovecraft's stories about the unknowable, the unfathomable entities of power and evil. And uh, yeah, he, just to be fun on the internet, he released a little CGI. Uh, test from that project it was I guess as far as it went and it's the shortest little clip it's like 25 seconds that looks like uh, I mean it honestly looks like a monster that would have been as iconic as the pale man from Pan's Labyrinth Mm -hmm. in my opinion because it's really something Um, yeah it's uh, 25 seconds and it's this terrifying like praying mantis man coming out of the foreskin of a sandworm from dune Hmm. and it's breaking through the ice like something out of john carpenter's the thing and boy now that i think about that that would have been a terrific project for him too uh for del toro was that uh prequel slash reboot of the thing uh but this looks like it would have been amazing and damn it we will never get to see this either but it was a really cu- cool thing that he shared with everybody. Like, look what I was designing for that movie. It would have been really messed up, right? Uh, yes, it would have been. <laughs> so uh, anyway, if your interest is peaked, go check out that clip. Uh, he shared it on Twitter. I think it it is a YouTube clip, though, so you can find it on there. So if your interest is peaked or crimson peaked, if you will, mm. uh, check that out and check out uh, Cabinet of Curiosities. On Netflix. Check out Crimson Peak on Netflix as well, uh, because it's not a scary horror movie uh, from Guillermo del Toro, but it is a lavish gothic horror that's beautiful and well acted, and not enough people saw that one. But I thought that was a fun Curio. And last uh, little movie news Uh, this was just a little cuteness attack that we got from Studio Ghibli. They collaborated with Disney and Lucasfilm to create a short film starring uh, Grogu a.k.a. Baby Yoda Uh, ever ever since I learned his name I can't stop calling him Grogu because the phrase Baby Yoda always kind of like sat my teeth on edge it felt very poochy to me Mm -hmm. but uh, Studio Ghibli made just this tiny little three minute hand-drawn short and there's not a whole lot to it it's called Zen Grogu and Dust Bunnies and it's just really cute. It's very soothing vibes. It's just, you know, these little dust bunnies follow around a little baby Yoda guy and they're all cute together for a minute. And mm-hmm. That's it. Uh, I I sometimes let my kids do a music video or something like that instead of a bedtime story. And I feel like this would be a really perfect thing for that. It's very much like, ah like just kind of tickles you a little bit and makes you feel fuzzy. And then it's over with in a blink. But, but it also reminded me I need to watch all the Studio Ghibli movies on HBO Max before they disappear. Probably because David Zaslav doesn't know what the hell they are or why they be. So, yeah. Uh,
1: ch- HBO is a <laughs> yeah. whole other can.
0: It's a dumpster fire. Uh, but it does have great things on it for now.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, but Zen, Grogu, and Dust Bunnies is on Disney Plus. And it's a really like there are a lot of people who are like, oh, ew I don't know if I like that Studio Ghibli is now getting into the business of making weird synergistic shorts for Disney Plus, because whenever Disney Plus has like when they mix together the Simpsons with Marvel or Star Wars or Disney princesses, there's always kind of an element of ick, ick. That's corporate synergy doesn't belong anywhere near the Simpsons. Don't do that um oddly those are the simpsons things that my daughter wants to watch over and over again i have watched the billy eilish and lisa simpson short over and over again i have Uh, not
1: seen any new simpsons stuff that they've made and i don't think i
0: will you're fine no you're you're absolutely fine um but yeah uh i do recommend that you check out uh zen grogu and dust bunnies even though you've never seen a stitch of mandalorian because you don't need you don't need to know who he is you just need to know he's cute and that's it and it's three minutes uh but yeah um that was all i had for movies i've got i've got stuff for comics and tv um one thing because we talked pokemon we should probably mention that uh, in terms of TV, the Pokemon Company did announce this week, probably because of the release of uh, Scarlet and Violet, that in Pokemon Ultimate Journeys, in some upcoming episodes, Ash Ketchum is finally going to become the world's strongest Pokemon trainer the world champion at the master eight tournament in the Pokemon world coronation series. So
1: two, uh, two points to, to, to point out here. One, uh, this is already live. It's on Netflix because Netflix has been the one who's gotten all the Pokemon stuff. So it's out, it's out number two. And this is what's driving me nuts. Ash already won the main championship in the previous gen series. In Gen Seven, the, the Sun and Moon ones, uh, he already became the champ, and they already did this news. They did this news cycle already, like two years ago, when he won the Alolan League, and it was the first time. And the whole thing was, oh, Ash finally, after 25 years, finally is a Pokemon Master, and he finally won something. So the fact that he won it again in like he's now. This is his second time winning. I'm like, fine. It's Ash is officially boring as a character, but I saw like the fight <laughs> a little bit, and it's pretty fire. Not going to lie. Because yeah. the, an- the Pokemon animes look beautiful. They have, like... I don't really like what they do with Ash. Uh, and this Here's a quick, quick tangent. You watch the original Pokemon series when it's in Kanto, and it's like... It's a little crunchy. It's a little early. This is when Pokemon, the phenomenon, is just kicking in. Ash is a little dickhead. And he's delightful. He makes constant mistakes. He sucks. He's an idiot. But he wants to get better. And he does, slowly but surely. But he also gets his ass kicked constantly. In the new stuff... Ash is perfect, he's beautiful, he's just righteously kind-hearted, and he never makes serious mistakes, he's just always good. He's kind of boring. He doesn't have to go through an arc of growth, and at the end of the league, he doesn't have to learn humility, because he's going to whoop some ass, because he is the main character now. And it's kind of a bummer, but for me, when they're like, Ash finally won! like No, Ash finally won last gen, he won again, which is not unexpected, but like, have your news, have your news cycle, guys. I don't know why I care so much about the inner politics of Ash Ketchum, but here I am, a grown ass <laughs> man, once again complaining about a children's show.
0: No, I'm I'm glad that you had the knowledge to to set us straight on that because uh, I'll be honest, I I just read that news item out just now and. All I can say is I said a lot of words and I I can't back up what any of them meant. So I'm glad that the, you could.
1: The Sun and Moon anime, the final fights were really cool. Um they were pretty iconic. They had some really cool like final things that happened and so like that is the only reason that I'm like no, they already made a huge deal about the fact that this this was Ash's big win was last gen. So the fact that he won again against Leon, the champ in in Galar, is like okay, yeah, keep the streak alive. See if he pulls a hat trick with the uh, the Paldea region, which he probably will, because at this point, Ash is officially kind of a boring um, like shonen, shonen jump kind of protagonist. In like he's very much like Goku or Naruto or or Luffy, where it's like yeah, he's just like the best boy who doesn't care about girls, he just wants to go on an adventure and win the thing. And that's okay, I guess, but if they don't, I mean, I feel like the ambition that Pokemon had for the anime is Gonzo, it's just, let's tie it into the, let's merchandise it, how can we do it? So, like, yeah, we gotta give them the win because we're literally about to jump into the next gen, and we gotta move on, buddy boy.
0: Yeah, well, and, and that's what I figured was that it was uh, timed. And and the news item was kind of timed to drum up interest in uh, in Scarlet and Violet and, mm-hmm. and in, just in the franchise in general again. But uh, anyway, last thing in TV um, and, and last thing for the podcast that I wanted to touch on was a teaser drop this week for The Witcher Blood Origin. Uh, Netflix did this four-part prequel series starring Michelle Yeoh as kind of an in-betweener story before season three of The Witcher lands uh, this next summer, which I think is good because if there was one problem between Witcher seasons one and two, it was the fact that like a year and a half passed and I forgot everything. Mm -hmm. I had to go back and rewatch most of season one just to know where the hell we were. And, uh yeah, I mean, uh Yeo stars as a sword elf who must unite with six other outcasts to battle an ultimate evil, and part of their story includes the origins of the Witchers. So it's set about 1,200 years before the main show, and, yeah, safe to say it's probably going to be pretty good, I think. Michelle Yeo has been... God, she's just been killing it the last couple of years. Uh, I finally did see Everything Everywhere all at once. Mm. We don't have time to get into it, but you and I will definitely have to talk off Mike, about it for a really damn long time. Oh, certainly. Uh, because I, I absolutely loved it, and she's amazing in it. And it's a movie that got to show off not just her amazing fighting abilities, but her dramatic and comedic acting abilities, her singing her just like she's such a multi-talented person and i'm Mm -hmm. so glad that her career has got this second wind because of stuff like that i i love i love her on star trek discovery she's one of the best parts of that show from its very first episode so yeah i mean if you if you were to tell me last year oh yeah you're gonna have to wait for the next season of the witcher but don't worry there's this prequel show that takes place 1,200 years beforehand and it stars a sword elf who has to be part of the creation of the Witchers, I'd be like, you know, that's probably an easy skip, right? I don't need to know all of that stuff. Her involvement in it is what's got me going, yeah, I I might check that out then, because what the hell else am I going to do while waiting for season three? Gotta do
1: something.
0: Have you delved into the Witcher at all?
1: Uh, I got about halfway through the first season, and it wasn't my thing, and I love Henry Cavill because he is just a glorious kind of dork, and I really like him. Everything I see about him, ancillary to any movies, he just seems like a genuinely nice, like, unassuming guy, and I really like that about him. Like, really into Warhammer, which is delightful, and like miniatures and stuff. <laughs> built He's built like, a
0: PC during lockdown. <laughs> huh? Uh, he he built himself a, a PC during lockdown. Yeah, that was one that I I really enjoyed hearing.
1: To to pull this full circle, he is another that the people would call a real one. And I Netflix keeps throwing the um, like the trailers for Anola Holmes two at me, and I haven't seen the first one, but you know I'm gonna. Because the trailer for the second one, I'm like, oh, he looks really good in it. And everyone looks good in it. And I heard those good are things fun. about the first one. I'm hearing good things about the second one. I might have to watch these movies now. You got me, Netflix. You finally got me with one of your trailers.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, those those are decent. They're they're fun, fairly family-friendly uh, action-y movies. Uh they're of better quality than some other netflix originals that come out every you know couple of years i i am very sad to hear that uh henry cavill as we talked about uh not last week i don't think but maybe the week before he will not be back for season four of the witcher they're replacing him with liam hemsworth which yeah and uh that did not go
1: well people did not respond well to that that
0: No, they didn't. I feel bad for Hemsworth because it's not his fault. It's, you know, the way I I said it on the show is that it's very much like uh, uh, replacing a Lexus with a Hyundai, and that's not the slam that it sounds like because Hyundais are actually quite nice now, and Lexuses are not the prestige vehicle that they used to be. Uh, They're essentially a, a fancy Toyota, and you know it's i think that hemsworth will be fine but he it will not have the same magic as henry cavill as geralt um but yeah no i mean i'm i'm looking forward to blood origin at least because that's more fun in that world and it's more lore and i like the lore of that world it's just really it's very hard to follow on the witcher prime because that show it does not hold your hand through it the way I mean I tried rings of power finally I watched uh, about an episode and a half of it and it's doing a very good job of making sure that I'm following along with what's going on Uh, I it's not enough has happened in the first two episodes to keep me going maybe I'll go back to it at another point but I
1: I have heard that 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 has flopped so hard that there's rumblings that they are rebooting it.
0: Oh god, I hope not cuz that's that's some that's I mean, some
1: eggy on facey right there.
0: Well, I mean there are a lot of parts of it that totally work. It's just I feel like it's not it's not as this has been my problem with with a lot of the big uh, marquee streaming original shows lately is that none of them feel like shows. They keep doing that thing where it's like, this is a 10 part movie that's takes place over 10 or 12 hours. And it's like, no, you, you've got to stop that shit. You can't do that. Especially if it releases week to week, it has to function like a television show. And that's why Andor has been my MVP of the last like six months Because Andor feels like a television show. It feels like an AMC show. It feels like Breaking Bad in Star Wars in terms of pacing, characterization, good writing, like good dialogue that actually informs what people are feeling. It's not concerned with making sure that you get to the fireworks factory every week. It's... (laughs) It's a different kind of show than every other Star Wars we've gotten, and it's also kind of different from all the other big-budget stuff like Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones and whatnot, because it's, it's not trying to show off how damn expensive it is week to week. It's more concerned with just, like, here's a wild suggestion, telling a good story, and it also... It's the only one of all of these shows that feels like it's designed to go longer than the first season. I don't think any of the other Star Wars shows have ever had like a series Bible that goes longer than the first season because they're all always expecting, oh, this was too expensive and it didn't get the viewership that it needed to. So we're not going forward with season two. So you got to make sure that season one ends on a satisfying conclusion that might be the end of the series. Andor does not have that. Andor's first season ended with, well, you better come back for the next, not season, but the next four seasons, because we've got five years planned. But anyway, uh, yeah, check out Blood Origin when that comes out in December. I think that comes out on Christmas on Netflix, so... If anybody, if that sounds like your cup of tea, dive in with me on that one. Maybe I'll talk about that on the show uh, come cr- come Christmas time or January, maybe. And uh, that's it. We, we talked it out. We talked it all out. It's all and, talked uh, out. And I thank everybody for tuning in and hanging out as always. And a very special thanks to Chris Pranger for being my best friend and for doing goofy nonsense with me on the internet since the long, long ago in the before times. It's what we do. And, uh, it's what we do. It's might not be what we do best, but it's what we do. And we're not going to stop doing it now. Why? And uh, remember you can send the show an email with news tips or any topics you want us to dig into. And that email is media sandwich show at gmail.com Or at Twitter, (laughs) for now, at Twitter, at Media underscore Sandwich. Uh, You can even follow me on Tumblr, at Media dash Sandwich. I don't know how any of that works. I I am so confused. I'm like Abe Simpson confused on Tumblr. (laughs) I'm cold and there are wolves after me. Mm -hmm. But I'm there. And you be sure to check out www.media-sandwich.com for all sorts of written word things that come not just from me, but hey, even on there, if you dig, there's a very epic replay of Breath of the Wild that Chris wrote, and I've been reading through it as I play Breath of the Wild, because it's really fun to read your perspective on the game while going through it myself. Oh, yeah. So check that out as well. Yeah, that that was good times. Uh, but until we, uh, talk at you again next week, uh, I have been Kyle Martinak. I have been Chris Pranger. And, uh, I'm gonna go have a sandwich. I don't know about you. I'm
1: actually gonna have a bowl of fruit brute because Walmart had way too many fruit brute left over after Halloween, so. Oh, that's...
0: that's my favorite of those halloween cereals so yeah. enjoy that hilarious
1: man. this woo which is your favorite i'm like sorry i'm pretty sure that fruit brute lost this year as as every year
0: <laughs> i mean count chocula wins every year but fruit brute yep. is my guy there
1: was one frankenberry left guy, and so. about 300 fruit brutes so Aww. yep